What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Planeswalkers Anonymous, the magic podcast all about pathways. So if you or anyone in your life shares our obsession with Descendants Path or Path to Exile, we are here for you. We won't rehabilitate you, but we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm Duncan, using my pathway arrows to tap Donovan. So, Donovan, how's your weekend? Why am I a creature? I thought I was a Planeswalker. Apparently I am also. I shot you with my pathway. Having some fun. Um, I posted on our Facebook page some some clips from me playing Magic the other day. Oh yeah, and I really enjoyed those. So I was playing a match with uh, in Historic, playing yeah. Red Black Arcanist against uh, the other color Sultai. It's the Sultai mid range deck. The other color from Red Black is Sultai. Yep, it's Red Black and Sultai. Those are the color choices in Historic, I think. Okay. I just game one, I finished them off with a spike field hazard, which is fun just cool. to get them in that one little point of damage. Like, think, got him. So that was kind of yeah. entertaining to me. Game two, I just got absolutely trounced and I did not record that. <laughs> <laughs> but then game three, I claimed the firstborn to their Uro. So I could I could seal it for a turn, and I attacked him with an Uro and a Croxa, which is kind of cool all on its own. You know, I got to attack with an Uro Titans. and a Croxa. <laughs> yeah, Titans go. Oh, are they also teens? <laughs> yeah, I, whatever. I don't know. They're not large mana costed creatures, so like that seems like maybe they'd be teens. And then my opponent just like chump blocked with like some inconsequential creature, I think, and took six plus the three from ha- having a hand when Croxa hit, but that put them at eight. And I was able to play a Croxa, play Malakir Rebirth on my Croxa that was in play already, so that, and then sack it to Legendary Rule, and then Malakir Rebirth brought it back, and then I played another Croxa from my hand. So I got four Croxa triggers in that turn, just domed them for 12 in the face. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, that was cool. I totally know my next standard deck, though. Yeah? It's going to be four colors, Team Titans go. Uh, Well, maybe you should play that in something that's not standard. Playing a four-color Croxa deck seems kind of (laughs) lame. Anyways, getting into the events, I think there were some four-color decks in the events this weekend, right? Yeah, we had, what, two Star City events this weekend? Yeah, two Star City events and two Red Bull events, because the Star City Season 2 Championship was up, but they still have the Season 2 Championship qualifier for that weekend, because they did championship qualifiers like every weekend, and then... Once a season, they do a championship. Sure. And so on Saturday, they had championship qualifier. That was won by Juan Felix Fleury on four-color Omnath, and he took down the match for the finals against four-color Omnath. That was a kind of a lame top eight, because seven out of eight of the top eight decks were four-color Omnath. Ouch. And the other deck was also, like, four-color Omnath is four colors, but it includes Teamer in those color combinations, and the eighth yeah. deck was also a Teamer deck. Sure. But sadly, Teamer Clover didn't even make it out of the quarterfinals, apparently. So, like, top four was all Omnath, too. Ugh, that does not sound like it would be fun to watch. I don't know, I didn't actually watch that one. I was doing the old Drive-A-Rooney. All right, doing the old Drive-A-Rooney. Drive-A-Rooney, come on, are you not familiar with that term? Common English phrase, my friend. I'm not familiar with a lot of English slang. Well, get familiar with it, because it's going to be coming up again. Were you also doing a Drive-A-Rooney during the championship? No, I just, I'm going to say that word again at some point. It's just, it, you're going to have to deal with that. Okay, second time, segueing to the Season 2 Championship. <laughs> yeah, what's up? What happened there? No, I actually got to watch the end of this one. I was at work, and I like to switch on some Twitch streams at work, but a, a friend of mine was streaming some old car soccer in the afternoon, so I watched him do that. But then afterwards, I got in for the 
the last match of the quarterfinals for the season two championship. Mm -hmm. And so I got to find out that it was just all on math from there. (laughs) That event was also won by Tangrams. Tangrams. Clearly always known as Tangrams on four color Omnath. Definitely never referred to as David Inglis. I've only ever heard to him referred to as you may know him better as Tangrams. I am starting to suspect his legal name is David Inglis, better known as Tangrams. (laughs) He's playing four color Omnath. He took down the match against four color Omnath in the finals. (laughs) That one was not seven out of eight Omnath decks, but it was seven out of the eight decks in the top eight were all playing Uro. Uh-huh. And so they're kind of similar, even though three of them, I think, were Sultai decks and then four Omnath decks. And we had the the lone hero on Gruel Adventures. Couldn't stand up against the Omnath decks, huh? I mean, the Wizards promised us powerful white cards. They just didn't let us know that it was going to also be all of the other colors. <laughs> but I think you were telling me earlier that this is SCG's own fault, right? Their events their coverage and everything. Yeah, I mean, I was watching the stream the last couple weeks on their, like, versus live and their coverage stuff and any SCG personalities streaming and stuff was just always the people were talking about how this four-color Omnath deck is the best deck. And so, like... SCG wants to move those Omnaths. A large number of people are playing Omnath. The deck is good. Probably the best deck. But if that's all SCG will talk about being good, then that's what people will play, you know? Yeah, especially the people who are following the SCG ones, right? Yeah, and so like we had a couple more events, and they weren't SCG events, and so although the Omnath decks were definitely dominant there as well, it was not quite as much so. People were a little bit more interested in playing other decks. Yeah. So we had a Red Bull Untapped Online Qualifier Germany, won by Ronald Mueller, also on four-color Omnath, but something else made it all the way to the finals with him, Sultai oh, Control. Not a mirror match this time. Yeah, not a mirror match in the finals. Only five out of the top eight decks in that event were Euro decks, even. Only five. So, yeah, I mean, there's like two Omnath decks and three Sultai decks, and then a couple Mono Reds, I think, and then a Teamer Adventures, if I remember correctly, for that event. But, like, we, we've been dealing with this and talking about it all year. It's like, there's just competitive magic is just getting to this point really, really fast these days. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Five out of eight is actually probably pretty diverse for what we can expect five out of eight playing a specific card keep in mind like three out of the eight were the same deck sure that's not that bad for standard in my opinion yeah i was just commenting on some of the stuff for one of the news things that we're bringing up later i wanted to make it obvious why that was happening sure (laughs) and then we had uh one more event it was the red bull untapped international qualifier japan i don't know international qualifier japan means like was it a paper (laughs) I don't, I don't think it was paper, especially since it's covered by MTGA Zone. So, like, I don't know. Maybe it was scheduled to be paper originally before pandemic stuff. Maybe. But anyways, that deck was won by Kataru Ichibashi on Four Color on with that. But this this was also not a mirror match, right? Well, not a mirror match. She's playing against Teamer Adventures, so even more different, even though more color aligned than the previous sure. match. And uh, there were... Six out of those top eight decks were Euro decks. I believe the other two were Teamer Adventures. Ooh, it seems like we are seeing a lot of Euro, though. Yeah, none of my roguey boys were making it. I was kind of sad about that. I think the rogue deck is pretty good, even if it is a bit of a rogue deck. Yeah. Now, the Mighty Ducks deck I've been playing is definitely terrible. <laughs> like, just Mighty Ducks 2, they changed the name of the team to the Warriors. It's a clever name. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk something about the news? Yeah, let's get into the news. 
your daily newspaper. Some of this that we've been hinting and alluding at. The uh, banned and restricted announcement came out today. We had the old standard banning. Mm-hmm. And we uh, chained Uro up in Tartarus, right? Well, I think you put down here that he's still allowed to kick it on Moto, right? Yeah, that's probably worse, honestly. <laughs> and I'd rather be in Tartarus than Moto. Fair. Fair point. So uh, what did Ian Duke have to say about Uro this week? He said that they've been looking at it for a while and just they didn't want to ban it initially just because they wanted to kind of see how things actually did shake out. And it does look yeah. like the card is just too strong. It's not allowing certain strategies. Like some of the more aggressive strategies really struggle to deal with this repetitive game three life cheap effect that ramps their opponent, you know? Sure. So they just decided to go ahead and to nix it. And I really feel like this is another instance of Wizards just not doing a good job of really thinking about what's going to happen after they do a banning and seeing how that's going to affect things. Because yeah. Uro should have been banned instead of Growth Spiral. Because yeah. Growth Spiral was about to rotate and mm-hmm. both of them kind of needed to go. And if they wanted to just ban one, it should have been Uro. Or, in my opinion, if they wanted to ban Growth Spiral... At rotation, unban Cauldron familiar. Yeah. But if you're gonna keep that power level of decks down, then you you have to do it to all of the archetypes, not just the one. Sure. Which is why we had Teferi, Grow Spiral, uh, Wilderness Reclamation, Cauldron Familiar all get banned together is like they're trying to hit all of the archetypes. Like with Field of the Dead, though, they didn't really look forward to what was happening afterwards. And so like after rotation happens, this Uro deck is just the best deck. Uro is the centric card, and it just plays with whatever removal and counter spells are available. Right. And it's not like those aren't going to exist post-rotation. So it's just like, yeah, you took one of the good decks and didn't nerf it for ro- after rotation, but you did nerf one of the good decks that wasn't rotating. Eh, you gotta balance that, you know? Right. So they did now, and that's probably fine. I am, once again, sad to see Uro go. I love it when mid-range cards are good. I haven't been playing Uro because most of the decks that play it are kind of boring, in my opinion. But I do like the card. So, we lost Uro. Yeah, the Uro archetype continues to be strong. There's nothing really holding it back. And then there's another Omnath deck that cropped up that's even better, but still plays Uro. Right. Uro is just cheap. Like, yeah, it's just really cheap and powerful. And with the life gain and the ramp, that life gain is helping to shore up the weakness of ramp decks, which is those early turns, you know, being weak to aggro and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just kind of like a banning kind of like was super expected. Like people were not at all surprised about it. Yeah, but I was just a little sad to see him go. Sure. Four mythics on arena, though. So that's neat. (laughs) Yeah. But we also got a bit of an update to the tournament rules, right? Yeah, we got some some updates to the tournament rules. Nothing major. It's all pretty simple stuff. Yeah, so yeah, so you actually explain this to me because I read this article and it's not like I found anything confusing. I was like, is there anything in here that's going to affect my playing the game? No, it's actually Seems pretty like much not. just explaining stuff that was already explained. They just actually put it in the rules. Yeah, so this is all just 
kind of behind-the-scenes functionality stuff, not really a major yeah, effect like, for anyone playing. The helper cards were not in the rules before. They just had checklist cards from the previous sets. And so they had yeah. they made helper cards the section, and checklist cards are a subset of helper cards. Okay. And then there's the just the shitty ones that were in Zendikar Rising as well. <laughs> and then like they put in language going like, hey, the set symbol on the cards determines what's in a set, not actually what's in the set. Which, Sorry, can you clarify that one for me? Yeah, like Planeswalker deck cards and cards that are exclusive to theme boosters mm-hmm. and stuff count as being in the set, even though they're not in regular booster packs. Okay, but they are listed in the list of cards that are in this set, right? Uh, nope. They are outside of the no. set number. Oh, okay. If you look at the set numbers on the card, it'll say like 36 out of 275. See, I don't... And then cards like those ones will just say card number 280. And it won't even say like out of a number. It'll say card number 280 or something like that. Because 275 is the cutoff. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't like that they do that. They... Yeah, no, I think all of the cards should be legal in draft... Or should be... In, that are legal and standard should be in draft packs. I think that's how you yeah. should determine that. Yeah, I think so. Or they are reprints of cards that are in draft packs you know i'm perfectly fine with like yadaro having the godzilla doom inevitable version you know it's like yeah there's not any godzillas in the draft packs but there is yadaros so that's fine right i understand that they want all of the cards in the planeswalker decks to be legal so that people who buy the planeswalker decks can just play their decks then just put stuff in it that's going to be legal. Like, you either print that card in the set or pick out cards from the set to put I in those I think those decks are especially bad. I really don't get why they do that. They should just build them with actual good cards instead of printing bad cards to put into them. Yeah. Use the bad cards in the set. They exist. It's fine. <laughs> I agree. Make them slightly beefed up limited decks. That's fine. I don't care. Right. Especially because the decks are bad anyway. So, like... <sighs> I don't know why they're making special cards for them. Oh, whatever. Especially when you look at, like, the deck list for these, they'll have, like, two of this and three of that. Just cut out the two of card that isn't in the set and give people a playset of this other uncommon you're giving them. Yeah, and so, like, they did another rules update is drafts are played with draft boosters, not any of these other ancillary boosters they've been making, like set boosters or collector boosters or theme boosters and stuff, because draft boosters are designed to be drafted with the other ones are not, and so the other ones do not provide fun drafting experiences. So they put in the rules, they're like, it just said, like, booster packs before, and they're like, look, it says draft boosters, because... Yeah, so, like, this was basically already the way it was. Nobody anticipated people playing draft with set boosters. Well, I mean, some people will. Some people will. It's but apparently a very unfun experience from what I've heard. The tournament rules just needed an update to accommodate these things. Yeah, so that way, like, somebody couldn't show up to draft and the people were like, oh, we don't have enough draft boosters, so we'll just give them a set booster, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the last thing was... Double Masters draft had a special update for it specifically because you pick two cards on your first pack of, or first pick of the pack. Yeah. And like that wasn't in the rules. That was just what they told you to do. So this is like Magic R&D is just getting ahead of the rules. And they're like, ooh, we came up with this new format. Ooh, and this new product. Put this out there. Hey, players, do this with this product. And someone at some point is like, oh, hey, we should probably change the rules to accommodate the thing you're telling players to do. Yeah, that's basically it. All Nothing right. groundbreaking. All kind of just uh, what we are doing. Sure, sure. Sounds good. And uh, we found out that the Walking Dead secret layer is going to be more than one card, right? Yeah, it is going to be more than one card. Um, none of them are going to be good from what I understand. 
because they're all going to be new cards that are not standard legal. They're eternal only, legacy, vintage, commander. Wait, wait. These are cards designed for the secret layer. They're not going to yeah. be. And they're ha- they have names like Michonne and Rick. Oh. Mm-hmm. We've got tons of. Okay, two things. One, we've got tons of really cool zombies from throughout Magic's history that people would be excited to have with just yep. a Walking Dead art. Just like do that zombie, but give it a Walking Dead art, and people would love that, right? Yes. And two, they've already set a precedent with the Godzilla cards where if they wanted to, they could make a Rick Grimes card, and it could be whatever they want it to be, but it, use an actual Magic card that people would like to have and just put Rick Grimes on it. Yeah, you know, I think if they wanted to do that, I think that they saw how the Godzilla stuff went and it well, and they wanted to see what mm-hmm. happens if they took it a step further, but they weren't quite as willing to do that in standard to just put like Rick Grimes in standard. Right. So they're just doing it in a secret layer is just yeah. what it kind of looks like to me. I think that I am really disappointed in the secret layer, but it's available, I believe, October 4th through 12th. Anybody who is interested in purchasing it and they're going to be advertising it in like Us Weekly and stuff like that neat. I mean, I guess the expanded advertising into, like, new sectors, basically, is kind of interesting. And, uh, I don't know. I'll be interested to see the cards, but I'm kind of disappointed, because I was thinking this would be cool. Like, it's some there's a bunch of, like, iconic zombies and stuff. Yeah, like Walking Dead art on sweet zombie cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a bunch of cool zombies that would be neat to get as a secret slap layer a, with some special Slap Michonne on a sweet Liliana or something. Yeah. Like, put Michonne on Liliana the Last Hope. What? Whatever. They did spoil some of them today. Oh, yeah? That's where I got the Michonne thing, is I saw the Michonne ones on Facebook. So we've got Michonne, Ruthless Survivor, a black, a green, and three. For a 3-3, three, three, then when it enters the battlefield, you create two walker tokens. As long as Michonne is equipped, she must be blocked if able. And whenever Michonne and at least two zombies attack, she gains indestructible until end of turn. Oh, that's... Legendary okay. creature, human warrior. Card is bad. Also, that is a really clunky way to try and express Michonne in only the way she appeared in, like, the first season of the TV. I don't know about the comic book. I mean, that's, like, that's what people have watched. Everyone's seen <laughs> season one of Walking Dead. But, like, after she met up with the group, with Rick Grimes' group, she lost her zombie buddies... And never made new ones. So, uh-huh. like, it's like seven seasons of her in the show. And she doesn't have zombies. No one before. has seen anything after season one, Duncan. And they went super clunky to try and make sure that she had two zombies attacking with her before she gets What? Yes. I think you should have to tap two untapped zombies you control to make her indestructible. Like, those zombies were go. attacking. That would be those better. zombies were not fighting. No, they were not. They actually, they stopped being capable of fighting. Yeah, that's my point. They were not capable of fighting because they were making her indestructible. Yeah, that seems like a bad card. Yeah, no, it seems not great. I, I just, I'm not, not a fan. Looks like the Walking Dead secret lair will get fleshed out. Yeah, yeah. Got any more news? You see anything else pop up? Uh, nope. You also scrounged up some, uh, financial advice for those players who are listening to us so they can figure out how to have the best stuff for the least money. No, I just actually wanted to make Mean Girls references. We finally did make Fetch happen, right? Yes. No, wait, yes. They didn't even need any money. They had magic cards. So the Wizards did this whole reprinting the Fetchlands with the Syndicate Rising Biobox promos, and there's, like, foil ones in the 
collector's edition collector boosters and stuff. Yeah. And somebody's trying to get me to buy their Verdant for $50, which okay. is less than regular Verdant Catacomb. And I just, I want to look into it. And it's like Verdant Catacombs go for like $55. And these Zendikar Rising Expedition ones go for $55. So like, I think these expedition ones are something that if you want a fetch land you should get these expeditions now because i think yeah they're gonna be so much more expensive later a little bit of this is basing off of my experience with the expeditions the first time around and those ones were a whole lot more rare so take this with a little bit of a grain of salt because like a little bit of this is the fact that like i opened a breeding pool expedition and battle for zendikar at some point throughout that time it's time and standard and I got an oath from Oath of the Gatewatch at pre-release. I got a Wasteland Expedition. Mm-hmm. And I got rid of those cards when they were worth $80 each, both just coincidentally. And those are yeah. literally the least they were ever worth ever. Oh, wow. And that was like two or three months after they had come out. Mm-hmm. I just think that these new ones are probably undervalued because... Like at the time, people were like, oh, yeah, they're fancier and rare and stuff. And so, like, some of the stuff, like the Scalding Tarn expedition was, like, pretty close to a regular Scalding Tarn price. Wasteland was, like, pretty close to a regular Wasteland price because yeah. the old ones were so rare, too. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, like, these new ones were expensive. And But then, like, eventually people were like, yeah, but these are also fancier. Mm-hmm. And so I think that as long as they're the same price as the regular ones, I think that they're probably a pretty good buy because I think eventually these will be worth more because they have this full art. They're just a little bit cleaner looking and actually something that if you pay attention to like magic finance and stuff, the little anti-counterfeiting stamp at the bottom increases a card's value. Okay. Like Misty Rainforest, the one from Modern Masters 2017 and the one from Zendikar. Those are ones where the pretty much the only difference is the set symbol and the little counter any counterfeiting stamp. And the reprint is worth more than the, the original. Okay. Because they practically look the same, just if you just glance at them. And so you're not going like, oh, this is completely different, you know? But the, yeah. the this one, the new one is harder to counterfeit, so people feel safer buying them. And so they're willing to spend a little bit more money on it. It's only like 3 or $4 different, but... It is the more expensive one. So these ones, they are a little bit fancier looking. On anything where the wording is unclear, these ones are going to have more up-to-date, usually clearer text on them. And they're going to have the more recent security measures and stuff like that. So I just think that they are going to be worth more than the originals by an actual noticeable difference later on. And so I think that as long as they're going for roughly the same price, it's probably worth it to grab these expeditions if you can. So these enemy fetch lands, typically just the original Zendikar versions of them, run somewhere between like fifty and eighty dollars, right? Depending yep. on the one that you're getting. Mm-hmm. And the Zendikar Rising Expedition versions of them are pretty close to the same price as the original Zendikar versions. Yep. Whereas the Zendikar Expedition versions of them are anywhere from like two to four hundred dollars. Correct. And so knowing all that, what you're saying is you are expecting these new expeditions to go up rather than the originals to go down. Because I think it's fairly reasonable that they will not stay the same price. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that this is especially in regards to the fetch lands and the higher Mm -hmm. end cards like Wasteland or I believe Ancient Tomb also has one. 
Yeah. I think that those cards are, especially those ones, some of the stuff like Luxury Suite may be a little bit less noticeable of a difference just because those cards are so niche as to who wants them anyways that it's going to sure. be harder for the price difference to be super noticeable. But I, I think some of these ones that are in higher demand because the formats you can play four of them, people play them in. Hmm. And then also they're played in Commander. Yeah. They're hitting both those markets. I think those ones are the ones, I think these these fancier ones are going to be worth more later. Sure. I think that's also true of some of the other ones. It's just not going to be super noticeable. So some of these Zendikar Rising expeditions are pretty expensive, but they're not any more expensive than getting a regular copy of these things right now. So if you're considering spending the amount of money where you can pick up a, a copy of this card, we're going to recommend you get the expedition copy because you can get it for roughly the same price and it's likely to grow in value over time. Yeah, and they all they do look really good, I think. Sure. All right. Sounds fun. Why don't we take a quick break, have a word from our advertisers, and then we will come back for another episode of On the Shoulders of Giants. I, I, I will get some uh, ice, maybe a little touch more and then uh, go to the bathroom just because I should do that while I'm on a break. Welcome to Zendikar, adventurer! You look like the type to conquer the Skyclaves and win your fame and fortune. With the right party by your side, the angels will sing songs of your exploits throughout the ages. All that's left now is to find that final companion to complete your party. That's where we come in. Don't become one of those adventurers who spends their life bar hopping and waiting for the perfect party to materialize by pure chance. Visit Basecamp Executive Staffing and we'll have you on your way with a veteran adventurer in no time. At Basecamp Executive Staffing, our veteran adventurers can fill any role you're missing. Need a cleric to keep your party healthy? Rely on your veteran adventurer. Need a warrior to make a hole in an oncoming horde? Turn to Basecamp Executive Staffing. Veteran adventurers can even be your party's wizard or rogue. Every veteran adventurer has been tested and proven in the wilds of Zendikar. Each has survived where all else perished. In fact, our veteran adventurers are almost always the only survivors of parties that include them. Basecamp Executive Staffing. Adventure awaits. I think that that does really sound like a good resource. I know I have a lot of friends that are real big fans of that, hanging out in bars and see what kind of adventuring party they can put together. But I've always felt like I had trouble meeting up for those consistently, and it might just be easier for me to head to a base camp and just hire some veteran adventurers. Yeah, you get a consistent quality with veteran adventurers. I'm a little bit concerned about the retention rate not with the veteran adventurers, but when the adventurers go out in a party, they seem to lose people. I think that it seems like their price is pretty in flux. It seems to vary a lot on what you're paying for a veteran. I think it really comes down to how big your party is before you go over to base camp. I think that they kind of consider the number of people that are in your group to begin with as like an investment. And they're like, okay, well, what amount of risk are we taking on by putting another person in this party are they going to have three people to support them or are they going to be just buddied up with one that's dude? true and also that does tend towards them getting cheaper if you have to hire multiples of them they get a discount on later yeah yeah that does sound like a good deal i hear that fourth veteran adventure is relatively yeah cheap. and like who's gonna stop you if you got four veteran adventures your party is gonna go the distance right 
Also, no one for the veteran adventurers to stab in the back and steal the loot. <laughs> that's true. Well, except for you. Sorry, that, that's just a rumor. It's just a rumor. They could have some traitorous instincts or have a bit of a treacherous urge. I think if you are partying with veteran adventurers, you kind of are standing on the shoulders of giants for your quest, right? Yeah. I mean, 5-5 five, five is easy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that that seems pretty large. So awkwardly try to segue yeah. back to our main topic. We've got a an on the on the shoulders of giants article today. We are going to read a uh, we're going to read the metagame clock, right? Yeah, the metagame clock. This is one that was originally concepted by Leon Workman and posted on the dojo. Kind of looks like he just sent them an email <laughs> about something he thought of, and they were like. This is super. We're totally using this. Well, if that is what happened, they were right. Yeah, definitely, because this concept has been written about extensively since. Various different people have commented on it. You might be able to tell, Donovan, from how I've used them in the show notes twice. I like Mike Mason's article on the metagame clock. Yeah, and I think what got us onto this one this time around was an article that I think we it might be worth coming back to some other time in this series, yeah. What I Know About Magic the Gathering by Doug Buell. Yeah, I think I read his stuff. So like, I was looking at that thinking about suggesting us doing that for this mm-hmm. article. That I was like, really, it might be better to back up and hit this metagame clock and then come back to this other stuff later. Sure. Because he's really talking about taking the metagame clock and how to play that to your advantage and really use different parts of the clock when you're strategizing. Mm-hmm. But it, it's really better to get a really good understanding of the metagame clock itself if you're going to do that. Yeah, so what the metagame clock is, really, is like, we've talked about the metagame before. We've done, I think, an episode on the show before, at least once, about what a metagame is. Mm-hmm. And really, I think, generally speaking, the metagame is a fairly vague and malleable concept. It's kind of like, what are people playing, and what's good, and what's good against that, right? And the metagame clock is like taking that concept and really nailing it down, and saying, we're not going to be vague and malleable, this is what it is. And it's, I think, not able to be perfectly accurate, because the concept is a bit diffuse. Nebulous. Yeah, nebulous, that's the perfect word. It doesn't lend itself perfectly to being able to just do the math because, you know, like player skill and quantity of people doing different things is going to have a big effect on it. But if just like in purely theoretical terms, nuts and bolts, how does a metagame tick? The metagame clock says, this is how it works. This is how you know which deck is better than which other deck in a vacuum, right? Yeah, and I think that there's going to be some stuff in here that when we're talking about it, it might seem like People believe that to be incorrect these days. And I really don't think that's true. What I'm really talking about is like the control versus aggro matchup. There's a lot of people that have talked about in recent years about how control beats aggro all the time. Oh, really? But I really think that what the, the part of the clock they're referencing is the, the mid-range section of the clock. Mm-hmm. Because the mid-range elements in the control deck is what beats the aggro deck. And the control part of the deck is actually the parts that lose to the aggro deck. Sure. Actually, that's something that I wanted to find a place to mention at some point, was that I think it is very likely that someone, thinking about the metagame clock, looking at what some of things other people have said about it, or where they're seeing decks appear on the clock and stuff, people will think, well, that's not right. And I would caution them to think about maybe 
it is right, and they just have the deck that they're thinking of at the wrong place on the clock. Yeah, that's what I wanted to comment on, because I guess maybe I should get more in-depth on that when we after we've gone over the metagame clock. Sure. But I just wanted to be upfront about that, is like some of these things, just because a deck is a control deck doesn't mean that it's always playing a control role. Right. That gets talked about with aggro decks specifically a lot in like that who's the beatdown article, like what role you're playing. And that one's a lot more limited on like what roles are available of beatdown versus control. And that's very valid when you're talking about that particular thing. But when you're talking about a metagame, there's a lot more roles than just beatdown and control. And right. what role in that metagame your deck is playing can shift. And so I think that that's something that people should keep in mind when talking about this. Yeah, and like just as a quick example, we're about to get more into exactly how this clock works, but we will have a link to an image of a metagame clock in our show notes because so, I think it'll, it can help really to be able to visualize some of this stuff, especially when we start talking about all these different numbers that are around the clock. But on this particular image, there is an example deck on here called Blue-White Control, and it's sitting right in the middle of mid-range and combo decks. It is not on the control deck yeah. part of the wheel. Yeah. And so just because someone calls this deck a control deck doesn't mean it necessarily plays that role in the metagame. Yeah, and like I wanna no. I wanted to say like I feel a lot of times like my gen deck in modern, it, it's a mid-range deck, but mm-hmm. I really do feel like I am good against certain combo decks. And that's because there are certain control elements in my deck that are the ones that are particularly good against that combo deck. And so in that matchup sure. I am playing like a control deck, which control is good against a combo deck. You know, and so like, that's the thing is like, sometimes your deck is actually, even though you call it one thing, it is playing another one. But then also sometimes, even if your deck is one thing, you can shift the way you're using your cards to behave as another version. Sure. And I think that gets back to what I said, like right at the very beginning is this concept is a bit more nebulous than what you can really pin down and strictly talk about the numbers. But this is the numbers. Like, if yeah. we're just going to go by the numbers, this is what the result you get is the metagame clock. Yeah. So you want to get into this? Yeah. I think that this clock really comes from, if we read the article, this is what he talks about, is he got this idea from this people talking about the classic triangle of control, aggro, combo. And yeah. like this rock, paper, scissors thing with control beats combo, combo beats aggro, aggro beats control. Mm-hmm. And that's all well and good, but the spectrum is more than just three points on a triangle. There's more places you can go around that. Right. And so he was looking at all these other things. He's like, I think this all still works and you can just fit it in there. And he's just added different variations and made the spectrum so that it's a circle instead of points on a triangle. It's just different places around a circle. Right. Instead of being like three points, it is a full spectrum and you can reach a point on that spectrum that is each of these three things, but you can follow that arc completely around, and there's a point on it for each kind of deck. Yeah, and so like he looks at it from a different perspective. He's got the beatdown combo control way of looking at the game is outdated. I look at it like beatdown mid-game combo control, aggro control. I think it might be worthwhile to mention at this point, this article is from the year 2000. Some of the terminology has changed significantly. Yeah. So, like, they refer to beatdown decks, which we these days usually just call aggro decks. You got mid-game, which we just call mid-range these days. Combo and control both stay the same. And they've got aggro control, which appears here, which I think is more typically called tempo these days. Yeah. 
but it's the same concept. Yeah, and he, he wants to insert these in there, and he talks about how it goes from, like, this rock, paper, scissors thing into, you know, rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock. Sure. Although, uh, that reference is maybe a bit after his time. <laughs> True enough. And so it's just like, you put those at points around the circle, and anything that is before your deck on the circle is what you lose to, right? Yeah, so if you draw a line directly through your clock, then going counterclockwise on the clock is are the decks that you beat, right? Going counterclockwise on the clock is the things that you beat, and going clockwise is the things that you lose to. Right. And so he's got the top of the clock is kind of where he's got the, the beatdown decks, but they're not the exact top, but off to the left on the top. Yeah. And it flows into the tempo decks, and then he's got control at the bottom, and it shifts into combo, and then we've got the, the mid-range decks on the top right. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to include an image, because he even says in his article here, get out your pins and paper, because he's just going to start listing numbers and names for stuff, and we've got to be able to fill those in to be able to visualize this. Yeah, he talks about like them being at different second points on the clock. Mm-hmm. and So your clock basically goes from 0 to 60. Yeah. It's just a circle with the minutes of the circle being your degrees of arc instead of the degrees in an actual circle. Yeah. So a full circle going from 0 to 60. The top of your circle is 0. Then he starts off by saying that your purest beatdown, we would say aggro decks, sit at 59. So almost almost straight up, right? And mid-game is at your 10, while combo would be near 20. Control is at 30. And aggro control, start tempo decks, are 40. So that's, that's close to, to our visual, right? Mm-hmm. Those decks are in those ranges. And another interesting thing is I think if you get this clock and you put the clock down, one of the things he says is like, what's your deck's worst enemy? Add 15 minutes to the clock setting of your deck and you'll find your worst enemy. Yep. And just like the mid-range deck's worst enemy is, you know, the combo deck. The combo, and, and that's just these archetypes that we talked about basically at 15-minute increments from each other. Slightly less because there's five on a 60-minute thing. Right. And one thing I thought was interesting that I think is laid out more in this visual that we've got than in the actual article itself, but is like the aggro decks, or beatdown in the terminology of the day, have a 15-minute degree of arc, right? Yeah. They go from 45 to 0. Yeah. And so an aggro deck doesn't just fill that entire 15 degrees of arc. Yeah. Or 15 minutes of arc. An aggro deck fits somewhere within those degrees or minutes, whatever. So you might have a particularly threat-heavy aggro deck that's just playing lots of creatures. It's going to be very, very close to the zero minutes mark, right? Yeah. Whereas a aggro deck that is relying a lot on having a bunch of, like, lightning bolts and stuff to really push through their damage is going to be closer to the 45 minutes portion of that arc. And so where your deck fits specifically in that spectrum matters also for when you're looking at, like, we'll add 15 minutes to your clock, is might change where you are, you know? Yeah, because in just that example of that pool, you have basically a 15-minute window, and a deck that is just purely aggressive creatures is going to lose, like, 95% of the games they play against a deck that's playing almost just as many aggressive creatures, 
but with some key removal spells. Oh, wait, that's actually backwards. The pure aggro would win, I guess. Uh, that's what the clock says. Yeah, the pure aggro deck, the reason it would win is because it has all these threats and it doesn't just get stuck with answers sometimes. And so it's going to win the race. And you sometimes are going to have these answers that don't line up. And those cards are just worthless to you. And so they're going to be outpacing you. That's what it is. And a lot of times your removal spell just isn't doing enough for you because they don't have very many like key cards for you to take out. Yeah. They don't care. You killed their thing, fine, I'm playing another thing. Exactly. Philosophy of Fire, that thing already hit you. I'm going on with my life. Right. We won for one on that card, and now you have less life, and I have the same amount of life. So I am in a better position. Right. And like even though this particular clock image we took is not from the specific article, it's from a later article on the same topic, one of the reasons I chose it and I like it is because around the outside of the clock, it not only names the archetypes, but it has little information about like what changes where you are within the arc of that archetype. Mm-hmm. Say the aggro control, or we would say tempo decks, are you leaning more towards threats or disruption? Because your aggro control deck is composed of threats and disruption, right? You've got bounce spells, removal spells, or discard spells or something to really keep your opponent off their footing while you push in with your threats. That's the concept of the deck. And if you've got more of those threats, then you will be closer to that 45 degrees than 30. And if you've got more disruption, you've got a lot of discard spells, then you're closer to the control style deck down at the 30 minute mark. Yeah. And I really think that these clocks should start with zero being the barrier between mid game and combo. You know why? Hmm. Because I think that that's where the like the flow breaks down. Like the the matchup is still accurate, so like having the circle is fine, you know? Yeah. But I think that that's where the flow of this deck into that deck really breaks down. Sure. Because the mid game deck, the lower the curve, the more like a beatdown deck it is. Then if you have a beatdown deck, the more elements of control you put in there, the more like a tempo deck it is. And then that tempo deck, the yep. more control elements and disruption you put in, the more like a control deck it is. You know, and then the control right. deck, the more deterministic your win con is, the more like a combo deck it kind of is. Right. It's basically if you have fewer threats in your control deck, like if you have just one or two, that's pretty normal for control deck. If you have just one, that's basically like a combo deck. You need this specific thing to win. Yeah. But then like combo, like in this little wheel, they've got like, yeah, the higher your curve is, the more towards the, the that end of the spectrum of the mid-range decks it is, the, that is closer to combo. And mm-hmm. the combo deck, I don't know, does that say generation? Yeah, it, it's about finding your combo pieces, I think, is what, like, if, if I remember correctly from this article, it's protecting your combo on one side and generating your combo on the other side, is what it's talking about. Your ability to find combo pieces and or have combo pieces be interchangeable. And I guess that interchangeability could be more like a mid-range deck, you know, stylistically. But yeah, I see what you're and saying. So, like, I think that if I were making this clock today, I would put that zero minute mark right there because then you have that zero through 60 and at 60 the clock resets resets as far as like what cards are in your deck and how they behave like each other Mm -hmm. but it's still accurate for this matchup win-loss thing yeah and really there's no reason you couldn't design the clock like yeah and i think i would just rotate it that's just yeah turn these things 45 degrees it's 15 minutes (laughs) i keep running into that too honestly like, I like the idea of a clock. I see why they went with a clock. But, like, you could have just picked, like, a different base 
for the numbers here, you know, instead of doing like base 60, you can do like base 360. Yeah, and have a circle with degrees that you can measure. Yeah. But the point is supposed to be that a clock is something that people can imagine in their head and go like, okay, between two and three o'clock, the arm moves this much. And so if you're talking about it where they can't actually look at an image of it, I think is what they're trying to go for. Yeah. I mean, you might be right, but personally, I keep on stumbling on whether I'm saying degrees or minutes. And so I hope that's not confusing for our listeners. But Yeah. And so I really like this. It is really good at showing you how those things work and how you need to adjust your sideboard maybe for those kinds of matchups. It's like, look, I'm playing yeah. an aggro deck. How do I beat this mid-range deck post-board? It's like, well, I mean, if you throw two combo pieces in your sideboard that if you draw them, you oops, I win. That can win you some games. You're playing an aggro deck, so you're not yeah. likely to draw them. But if you're going to lose to the mid-range deck 100% of the time, the other way, if you put these two cards in your deck where it's like, well, if I draw these two cards 10% of the time, now I have 10% win rate, you know, instead of zero. Sure. And, and like, obviously, it's never going to be that bad a win rate, zero. But you know what my point is, that that's the kind of thing you can use this clock for with the metagame is going like, okay, this deck is causing me problems. What kinds of cards do I need to put in my sideboard to beat it? Sure. I think um, he kind of goes on to say, back to the article, right, that he's noticed that the closer a deck gets to the top of the clock, the easier it is to play. And I was like, oh, maybe that's one of the reasons why he likes it like this because that shows like but then again if you did like you said and rotated it 15 degrees or 15 minutes then instead of saying the top you would just say the left yeah and it wouldn't change i think whether or not that's true he probably made his clock this way because he's thinking of that classic beatdown control combo pyramid and when you start yeah. labeling a pyramid you label the points of your pyramid the top bottom left bottom right most of the time that's how somebody's going to label sure. a pyramid. So I think he took the pyramid, labeled it with the beatdown control combo labels that people were talking about, and then mm-hmm. expanded it into a clock. And so I'm just saying, yeah. I think that's what he did. And I just think that when you shift to this clock metaphor, it would also be good to rotate. Sure. But he does have that line. And then he talks about how the things at the bottom of the clock get more expensive to buy, which I think is funny. Yeah. Because that's still accurate today. Like, the two major combo pieces for a super fancy combo deck are going to be more expensive than, like, a whole aggro deck sometimes. Yeah. And the control deck cards are always more expensive than the the mid-range cards. Because that's part of what the mid-range deck is doing, is it's like, well, these cards are all interchangeable, and so, like, I just need, mm-hmm. I need any of them to win. And they do the thing. And so it's like, well, they're interchangeable, yeah. so I don't have to have specifically that one, right? <laughs> Whereas those combo and control cards are like, well, no, you need to have these specific combo pieces or these specific answers to their stuff so the the price is higher. Yeah. So I, I do think that's kind of interesting how like the price of the deck is also kind of included in this flow chart here. Sure. So I think that the next part of his article is very deep in the minutia of the specific deck metagame he was playing. <laughs> right. Like he makes a list of the top 10 decks in the metagame he was playing with in 2000 and gives each of the decks values. In type 2. <laughs> yeah. In type 2, he gave each of the decks a value. For example, he's got Accelerated Blue at 1, 1 minute on the clock, and Red Land Destruction at 42 minutes on the clock. So, Donovan, would you feel comfortable giving a, a quick estimation of the minutes of a couple of the big decks right now? Yeah, as I was, I, you, were, you were getting into this, and I thought that might be where you're going. 
And so I was like, I can go to MTG Goldfish and find there's a like, metagame breakdown for standard. Mm-hmm. And I can just like go over those decks and see where I think they land on the clock. Yeah, that'd be cool. So I highly doubt that this metagame breakdown is going to include the meta post-Euro ban. So does anybody right. listening keep that in mind? Sure. We're just using the at time of recording metagame breakdown from MTG Goldfish and can Consider this is the metagame at least a week before you guys hear this. So yeah. It may not be current. Yeah. If we're going to pull this up here, I am just going to go in the order that they're on MPG Goldfish, okay? Sure. So we've got four color Omnath. I would really put it at kind of the 15 to 20 minute mark. It's like a combo deck. It's a ramp deck. And so it's a lot more on the end of the combo stuff where it's like I have slightly interchangeable combo pieces and... I, I kind of just get value for my cards and eventually combo off. But yeah. and it looks a lot like a mid-range deck because you're not instant killing anybody. But if you look at how the deck plays, it just it tries to find Omnath Locus of Creation or Genesis Ultimatum. And with that Genesis Ultimatum, they're trying to find Omnath Locus of Creation or sure. Ugin the Spirit Dragon and stuff. And it just yeah. it just tries to get an Omnath and an Ugin and then the Omnath plus lands eventually outvalues your opponent and lets you just keep playing more and more spells because he makes so much mana that you just have this overwhelming board presence. So would you say like 16, 17? Yeah, I'd probably say this. I will go with 16. Like pretty close to that mid-range section of the clock, but still in the combo. I would put that one in 16. All right. And we've got Sultai mid-range, which I would probably put at... This is one of the things about like a lot of modern deck naming and stuff doesn't necessarily line up with the way people named decks back then because like back then though on this clock we've got you've got like blue eye control in the mid-range deck and like i kind of think the sultai mid-range deck might just be in the control control section section towards the combo control because it's it's only ways to win are four euros and an ugin and then the rest of it is disruption and permission and so it just tries to live long enough and keep controlling the game until they can stick an Uro and play and attack you to death with that or stick the Ugin and just completely dominate the board state. Yeah. That's the way those decks kind of work. And I would probably say I would put this one around like 27. Okay. It's not really very tempo based. It doesn't get any kind of threats out early at all. There's like one Brazen Borrower sometimes, but <laughs> sure. it's not really what it's doing. We've got Mono Red Aggro, which I'm going to go with like 55. <laughs> okay. Like the Mono Red Aggro deck. Sounds right. It's got a little bit of disruptive spells, but also those are all ones that you can throw at their face, so they're kind of still threats. And yeah. if you do too many of them on their creatures, sometimes you fall short on damage. So like, I would probably say that this one is on the beatdown. This is a beatdown deck. But like, yeah. there is some stuff it can do to interact. So I, I would probably put it at like 55. Okay. We've got Demir Control, which I'm going to throw... This is a mill deck. So I'm going to put this heavily in the combo control range. Like, we've got blue-black mill on this clock here. This is blue-black mill, my friend. Sure. It's on this clock from 2000. It's on our clock today. And they've got it right there at 30. I like that spot for it. Okay. Think 30? Yeah, because it's got some stuff that comes down a bit early that does repetitive mill stuff that I could I could see being more towards the early threat range stuff that the tempo decks do. Yeah. I think that this blue-black mill, although not a great deck <laughs> right now, is hardly still pretty accurate with where it's at on there. Then they've got Sultai Control. This is just the Sultai mid-range deck, just some different threats in it. So it's 
in the same place. <laughs> right at 27? Yeah, I would say probably, yeah, right at 27. Uh, actually, you know what? I would say that one's probably closer to 25. The Sultai Control ones are a little bit more towards the tempo strategy because they have some actual threats that they're going to want to actually kind of start hitting you with to generate value. Whereas the, the Sultai midrange deck is just waiting around controlling the game until they get their huge haymaker off. Which the Zerasand and the Lockmeers are supposed to be kind of haymakers too, which is why I don't put them too far away. But yeah. I would say instead of 27, I might say like 29, 30. Okay. I don't know what I said. I think I said 25 before because I went the wrong direction. And then we've got Gruel Adventures. I would put this one at about two or three minutes. This is a mid-range deck, but it's low to the ground. Yeah. It's going to play Edgewell Innkeeper to generate some value, and then it's going to, and Robber of the Rich kind of early on to kind of get some value generation going on, and then play these guys like mm-hmm. Bonecrusher Giant and Lovestruck Beast with those Innkeepers, and it's just like these are under-costed threats because Bonecrusher is a three-mana 4-3, four, three. Lovestruck Beast is a three-mana 5-5, five, five. Kasandu Mammoth is a three-mana 3-3 three, three that gets plus two, plus two off Landfall, so sometimes a three-mana 7-7. Seven, seven. And yeah. so it's just, they're low to the ground threats, but I would still put it probably in the mid-range plan because it's not necessarily needing to flood the board to kill you. It can win off of one or two of these threats just kind of clocking you over and over. Sure. But it is pretty low to the ground. I'd put it probably like two or three minutes, something like that. Okay. And then we've got Teamer Adventures. They've got four color adventures in here. I think that's just Teamer Adventures with Omnath in it. Do you want to just leave it out? I'm just going to go Teamer Adventures. Okay. Teamer Adventures is where I would put probably the most solidly a mid-range deck that actually kind of has combo elements. Like, so that justifies this flow from mid-range into combo. Because it's got these cards that just kind of do some value generation, like the Gruel Adventures deck. But it's way more dependent on having a Lucky Clover, whereas the Gruel deck is not. I don't think... Yeah, the Gruel deck doesn't even play Lucky Clover, right? Whereas the Teamer Adventures deck, like, it can win without Lucky Clover, but its spells just kind of suck. Because it's way more dependent on the adventure half of the spells. Whereas the Gruel Adventures deck is more dependent on the mana-efficient creatures that you're having on these adventure spells. And they just sometimes cast the spells instead. And so I would say that this one is probably about a... I'll put it right at 15, like... It's straddling the line of a combo deck or a mid-range deck. Mm -hmm. Like, I know I said that that doesn't... I don't really feel like that generally happens. And I feel like it doesn't. But I think it did this time. Sure. We've got Mono Green Aggro, which I think I would probably put with the Ghoul Adventures deck. But maybe just under it at, like, one or two. Because it is pretty close to being a beatdown deck. I just don't, I feel like it does scale well into the late game, like, which makes it feel more like a a mid-rangey deck to me. Okay. And we've got Demir Rose, your boys. And depending on exactly your variation on it, I think that this could fall somewhere from 40 to 45 minutes. But I think that in general, the lists are going to go about 40. I'm going to go 41. I'm going to say 41 is my final answer. Hedge a little bit towards that 45 that I said they could go to. They've got Gruel Aggro on here, which is kind of a landfall deck. This one is an aggro deck that I would actually put in the aggro strategy, because I know I put the Gruel Adventures deck that's kind of people talk about being an aggro deck, and I put the Mono Green Aggro deck in the <laughs> mid-range deck, but I, I this one is probably actually over there in the, the aggro strategy. And it just it's pretty light on interaction. It's got a little bit, but I would say that this one's even less interactive than the Mono Red deck. So I would okay. probably stick this guy at like 57. Where did I put Mono Red? 55? Yeah, 57. 
those are the ones that are like I'm actually seeing. I can go through the other twenty decks that are on here if you want, but no, we don't need that many. But it looks like these are in order of how common they see them in the meta. I just don't see the same number. Like I don't see mono red more than I see rogues and adventures. But MTG Goldfish is looking at all of the meta, and I do not play best of one. Sure. Although I should. So I'm having trouble visualizing these like plugged into the clock all at the same time. My question now is if we have the four color all math deck sitting at about 16. Yeah. Right? And the way our clock works is all the decks counterclockwise down to 45, roughly, are the ones we should beat. And the ones clockwise to 45 are the ones we should lose to, right? Yeah. Then that means anything between 16 and 45 ought to be really good against us. We've got uh, Sultai Midrain, Demir Control, Sultai Control, Demir Rogues. All of those decks appear in that. I like that. That in that I rank. feel like that accurately represents. Those decks seem like they're good against. It Omnath. does seem like maybe the Sultai mid-range decks are not as good against Omnath as where I placed them on the clock says they would be. But other than that, yes, I agree that those all do seem like that. So, so maybe the Sultai mid-range deck, I'm incorrect about its placement on the clock. I don't play either deck, and so I could be wrong about that. But sure, and this this is kind of off the top of your head and generalizations also i i thought i'd point out that we just had a card band out of this deck right yeah and i bet the wheel kind of breaks down some if you have a ridiculously overpowered card in any of the decks that's true and i think the sultai midrange deck is not in the same section as those other ones that we i said oh those do kind of actually beat it right it was demir control and demir rogues was those the other the ones that yeah. Like, those guys feel like they're pretty good there, whereas the Sultai midrange and Sultai control deck like that are closer to each other don't really do well against the, the Omnath deck. Back to the thing I was saying, though, about an overpowered card is, like, say, midrange decks beat aggro decks, right? That's the conventional wisdom, and that's borne out by our clock, right? Yeah. But if your aggro deck had a 12-12 creature for one mana with no drawback, that's going to be any mid-range deck. <laughs> yeah. Because if you have a busted card, it kind of breaks down the math. So yeah. I think that kind of makes sense. The only problem with that is the Sultai deck played that card too. But I think the Omnath deck took better oh, advantage yeah. of it than the Sultai deck did, and I think that's why. Okay. I think the, the busted card was better in the Omnath deck than it was in the Sultai deck, mm-hmm. and that's why it breaks that down, I think. Yeah. I think the rest of the article after the breakdown of the metagame is kind of just examples of some of the decks that were getting played at recent tournaments. Like, he refers to the Invitational. That was where you got to, you played against the pros, played against Wizards employees, and whoever won the tournament got to design their own magic card, Dark Confidant and Solemn Simulacrum and stuff. Right, but which Invitational? I guess it'd just be whichever one was most recent. The 2000 Invitational, probably. My, my point, though, is like pretty much the rest of this article is him giving some examples to kind of justify his theory of this metagame clock. And in this, his examples, he talks about, it's like, and he lost to this deck, and that shouldn't happen according to my clock, but that's just a fluke, and that happens sometimes. And it's like, that's accurate. Sometimes you lose matchups you should win. Right. And also, the clock doesn't account for player skill, you know? Like, if I'm playing against my daughter then I can probably play anywhere on the clock and beat her, regardless of where she is on the clock. Well, she's nine. I am 
very proud of her ability at magic, and I'm glad that she plays pre-release stuff with us. But she plays pre-release stuff with us, she understands how to build a deck and play the game, but I think that I can probably beat her tempo deck with my combo deck. Probably. And so my, my point just being that this clock... The point being that you beat up on nine-year-olds? Yes. My point being the clock doesn't take stuff like that into account, so it's not going to be perfectly accurate if you look at the metagame and pick something out based on the clock and go to an event and lose, that doesn't really mean the clock is wrong. And honestly, if you have a problem with that happening a lot, I might look at the article that I was talking about. It's like what I know about Magic Gathering. It talks a lot about the clock and about how to manipulate the clock to your advantage. And so like, we'll hit up that article at some point. But if in the meantime, you're going like, well, I really feel like this deck, this control deck is beating me and i'm playing a a tempo deck so like i feel like that's not accurate maybe look at that article in the meantime we'll get to it eventually yeah and i would just wonder like I, maybe you are brilliant at evaluating decks and placing on the clock i don't know but my first question if you were having that experience would be is maybe one of those decks in the wrong place on your clock yeah because if, if you're calling it a control deck and it's actually a mid-range deck that flips the matchup on you yeah and I think it bears repeating, we mentioned this earlier, but the very bare-bones basics way you use this clock to evaluate the metagame is if you look at what people are playing, then the deck to beat that is 15 minutes advanced on the mm-hmm. clock from what they're playing. And maybe that's how Wizards decided this Uro needed to get banned, is that this deck at 16 was beating these decks at 25. And so Wizards like, yep, look at that, metagame clock's breaking down, must be busted card. Yeah, and I think back to the point where I started with this stuff, and I was saying that um, this metagame clock is kind of the nuts and bolts way a metagame works. Is I, I have a quote here from Mike Mason writing in his article about the metagame clock for Star City Games. It says, right now, this was from 2005, where our, uh, our visual clock comes from. It says, right now, I think people are anticipating beatdown, meaning they're playing mid-game and combo. Metagamers are therefore clocking to control. That's metagame. It's like, this is how you use metagame and use the clock, is you say, look, a lot of people are expecting there to be beatdown decks at this event, so they're going a forward 15 minutes, and they're playing their mid-range and combo decks. And if I think most people are going to be doing that, then I'm going to go forward another 15 minutes, and I'm going to play my control deck. Yeah. And if you have evaluated all of those factors correctly, Yeah, and that's the thing is, like, if you think the majority opinion of what is going to be there is a majority of people that actually are going to adjust for that, then that means that the metagame shifted. And that's what he's trying to say is, like, people are anticipating beatdown, which means that actually what's going to be there is mid-range and combo. Right. But, like I was saying, if you have done that incorrectly and you show up with your combo deck and everyone is playing yeah, it's aggro. Yeah, like what everybody anticipated being there of beatdown is what's there. Your yeah. control deck might die. <laughs> right. Which is, again, how like you can use this clock and everything and be like, oh, it didn't work. It's like, well... The tool is only as good as the craftsman who uses it. Right. The metagame clock does not predict the future or the results of a tournament. This is just information for you to use to help yeah, and if anybody knows an archetype that fits in this clock that we didn't cover, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, like, they're like, well, my sandwich deck fits in this clock in this place. It's like, why is your sandwich deck not these things? Well, for these reasons. All right. 
sandwich deck is that transition point between mid game and combo is like very clear. Oh, that's why it's called a sandwich deck because it's sandwiched between mid game and combo decks. I got gotcha. you. Well, I mean, if it fits on this clock anywhere, then it would be sandwiched between something. <laughs> Shut up, Duncan. Circle. You're not helping my <laughs> argument. Therefore, you should be silent. Uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to add about the metagame clock or about the article by Leon Workman? No, I, I don't think so. There's some other stuff that I think about this that I got because I came into this with my opinion colorized by Doug Buell's article. Yeah, clearly I'm pulling a lot actually from Mike Mason's yeah, so article. Yeah, I think if we of... get around to Mike Mason's article or Doug Buell's article, then we might have some more to say. But I think as far as this article covers things, I think that we've got it pretty well in covered because this is the point of this article is just to explain the metagame clock, what it is, how it works, and how you put a deck on here. Sure. And I think it's fun, actually. I think I might take the time. We talked about where the current decks fall on the clock. I might take the time to do a graphic like this one that we've got in our notes, but with the modern decks on it. I might put both of those images into our show notes for people to look at. I guess on that point, the show notes doesn't support images. So when I say images in the show notes, there will be links to images. So that covers it then, right? Man, I feel like we got through this pretty quickly. But I guess all in all, it's just not really all that long of an article. No, it, it was just an email he sent in to these people and they posted it like we do with uh, Turn Them Sideways, right? Yeah, but it was like, very influential. Yeah, and like as we said, we we both know other articles that are influential and interesting that are based off of this article. Like that's how influential it was. Right. And like what I am most familiar with on the metagame clock is an article by Mike Mason and he has like right in his article the link doesn't work anymore, but it's here's the original article from Leon Workman. I'm going to summarize it, but I really think that you should go and read that. Article, email, whatever. Yeah. So I enjoyed it. I always like doing the On the Shoulders of Giants thing. Two reasons. One is it kind of gives us a lot of really good, useful stuff to say without having to be original and think of things. And two, I just really enjoy kind of the history of the game and all of the... I don't know, history again, <laughs> the history of magic and stuff that's happened that may or may not still be in the zeitgeist. And I just think all that stuff is really interesting. So I have. I really like looking at these because it reminds me that I am not a giant. <laughs> <laughs> I look at this stuff and I'm like, man, I should think about this more often. These seem like it would improve my gameplay. Somebody had this original idea. <laughs> they didn't learn this as a toddler from the older magic. Yeah. Players. Someone had to figure this out, you know? Right. But for some of your original wisdom, Donovan, I would turn to the judge call. Yeah. So I just want to talk about this because it's something that I just didn't actually read the cards whenever I was playing. And I very much should have because it says it's one of those RTFC moments. But are you familiar with the card Archfiend's Vessel? When he comes back from the graveyard, you get a 5-5 demon token and he goes to exile. I'm not particularly familiar with it, but I have seen yeah, it. Yeah, so I, I quote-unquote knew how the card worked, right? And I attacked yeah. my opponent with a rogue. They didn't block. I ninjutsued in Zarathsan and hit him with it. And then I was like, ooh, I can pick a card from their graveyard. And I was looking at stuff. I was like, ooh, I can get some more mana so I can play another spell this turn by taking their land. Or I could get, like, this 4-3 creature. So I was like, oh, I could grab this Archfiend's Vessel, and I would get a 5-5 Flyer. Like, that's 
pretty ridiculous. I'm going to get that. And he went into play, and I had a 1-1 with lifelink. And I just like looked at him like, but I, I took him from the graveyard. Why... Why no five five? It turns out that Archfiend guy is pretty possessive of his vessels, and if you steal them, he does not gift you with his presence. It says on there, if he enters the battlefield from your graveyard or he casts him from your graveyard, then he exiles and you get a five five demon token. Yeah, it does not so say that he just entered from a graveyard, and so stealing your opponent's Archfiend's vessels does not work. As much as I would like for it to. So the relevant card to the Archfiend's Vessel is a 1-1 for a black human cleric with lifelink. And when it enters the battlefield, if it entered from your graveyard or you cast it from your graveyard, you exile it and create a 5-5 black demon creature token with flying. Right? That's neat. And then you also had a Zarasan the Trickster, the 4-4 legendary merfolk rogue for black, blue, and three. He has flash. He has ninjutsu for four. Rogue ninjutsu. Just swap him out with your attacking. Yeah. Rogue Ninjutsu, not Ninja. Yes, Rogue Jutsu. But that means, yeah. Whenever Zareth Sand deals combat damage to a player, you may put a permanent card from that player's graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. So I know you said all of these things, but I was like, for anyone who's not familiar with what those cards are. So he attacked with a rogue, got to swap it out with Zareth Sand, pick out a card from the graveyard, and you get that Archfiend's Vessel to make a 5-5 black demon creature. And that didn't work. Yeah, no, it didn't. Because <laughs> it it does care whose graveyard it's entering from, so it's just that's something to keep in mind. Is yeah, I guess it does say if it entered from your graveyard. Yep, it was real disappointing. Not gonna lie to you, <laughs> made me sad. We don't often get uh, judge calls where Donovan is. Yeah, and keep in mind, folks, this is one of those RTFC moments. There was no hidden things going on. I I just needed to read the card, but I mean. A lot of these judge calls and stuff are kind of RTFC, but like it's wording that is complicated to people, and that's why they didn't understand it when they read it. Yeah. For me, it was mostly one of those, I know how this card works. Sometimes reading the cards explains the card. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I was going to say. I thought it was funny, and it is kind of fun to share with people. Uh, I-, I, made a- I made a dumb moment. <laughs> sure. <laughs> cool deal, man. I had fun talking about the metagame wheel. I'll see if I can make us a little image to go along with that when we get off of here. Do you have anything else that you want to add, Donovan, before we take off? No. Um, well, yeah, it just kind of leads into our credits. But, you know, I just want to remind people to like us on the Facebooks. Yeah, definitely. Go to Facebook.com slash Planeswalkers Anonymous. Yeah. And uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of you to, I don't know, tell you about something cool you should post on the Facebook or tell you why you put some deck at the wrong position on the clock. Where did you can find, find me at Boardwalk Games in North Dallas. I am there a lot of days of the week selling Magic the Gathering cards, Pokemon cards, all your favorite board games. And by favorite board games, I mean good ones, not Monopoly. <laughs> and also, if you don't want to travel up there and see me in person, which I think is perfectly understandable, Inside or outside of pandemic, I think being in my actual presence is sometimes not pleasant to people. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at day underscore Donovan or on Twitch at twitch.tv slash dday underscore 99, where I've been streaming most Fridays, sometimes other days of the week as well. well I don't know about people not wanting to be in your presence, Donovan. I find that unlikely. I think people are pretty happy to come up there and see you at Boardwalk Games. <laughs> me, on the other hand... I'm not even going to give you a way to see me in person. You can find me at Engine Within. If you want to see Twitter. him in person, you go to his bedroom. That's it. He's nowhere else. Um, 
Oh, well, there's a pretty strict vetting process. Oh, I'm not saying they'll get in. I was just saying that's how you do it. Oh, okay. Well, I say it's a strict vetting process. I mean... I said the bedroom, not your bed. Anyway, Twitter's pretty much the only place you can find me at Inkmaden. But, if you want to find more from the show, possibly some articles, merchandise, stuff like that, you can go over to Inkmaden.com. You can check out our merch at the TeePublic at TeePublic.com slash user slash Inkmaden. Or... Best of all, best for us anyway, and hopefully pay out some dividends to you at some point. Uh, maybe. It's uh, patreon.com slash engine within to support the show. Don, I think we've gone off on enough tangents and everything. Call yeah, it hey, later days, man. Lost lasagna. Don't get me out. There's a really good Avenged Sevenfold song about that. About necrophilia? Yeah. It's mutual, though. Mutual necrophilia? Yeah. yeah. But whenever I was putting some of these notes... Uh, sorry, cut that. We don't want listeners thinking I do any work.